The Allegheny River, which flows south from its Pennsylvania source up near the state line with New York, and the Monongahela River, which comes from the confluence of the West Fork and Tigart Valley Rivers in Fairmont, West Virginia, both come together in Point State Park in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to form the Ohio River, which travels southwest to Cairo, Illinois, where it meets up with the Mississippi. Along the way, it flows through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. It also forms the border between the states of Ohio and West Virginia. Point Pleasant, West Virginia, sits where the Kanawha flows into the Ohio. Across the Ohio River, in the state of Ohio, is the village of Gallipolis. The two are connected by the Point Pleasant Bridge, officially known as the Silver Bridge because of its aluminum paint. This I-bar chain suspension bridge was finished in 1928, a grand piece of engineering similar to the chain bridge in Budapest, Hungary, and the Three Sisters self-anchored suspension bridges in Pittsburgh. Or rather, this bridge did connect the two towns, until the strange events of 1966 and 1967, and the visitations of the Mothman. Welcome to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, a bridge, a bridge too, too far. far. The Mothman, Mothman visits, visits Point, Point Pleasant. Pleasant. As always, I remind you, you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page and give us a review wherever you listen to the podcast or on IMDb. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. I'm a believer. That's a 1966 hit song by the Monkees. November 15, 1966 was a clear, crisp evening in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Two 18-year-old married couples, the Scarberries, Linda and Roger, and the Millettes, Mary and Steve, were out for a drive in one of the couple's 1957 Chevy. As they were passing what locals called the TNT area, this was a munitions plant and storage facility during World War II north of town, they saw something odd at the side of the road. It seemed to be a, quote, slender, muscular man, about seven feet tall, with large white wings and glowing red eyes, which seemed to almost induce a hypnotic state when you looked into them. Needless to say, this apparition sort of freaked them out, and they sped off. The creature took to the air and flew after them, screeching or tittering. It followed them for five miles until they hit the city limits. The friends conferred and agreed they'd all seen the same thing, so they immediately went to the nearest police station and made a report. After all, who knew what the heck that thing was and if it was dangerous? The sheriff accompanied them to the TNT area and saw nothing himself, but he said that he found them to be credible. 
The next day, Athens Messenger journalist Mary Heyer wrote up the story for the smaller local paper, the Point Pleasant Register, titling it, quote, Couples see man-sized bird, dot, 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 creature, dot, 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 something. News must have been slow because papers and news services farther afield found the article interesting or amusing and also picked it up. And when AP picked it up, the story spread further and further beyond the borders of Mason County. Suddenly, lots of people in the area were seeing strange things. Five gravediggers from Clinton, about 75 miles southeast, said that they'd seen a large winged human-shaped creature flying over some trees just a few days before the Scarberries and Mallettes had seen their creature. Two volunteer firemen were poking around a warehouse when they saw a large creature that they thought was maybe some kind of a bird. A wildlife biologist at West Virginia University, Robert Smith, opined that this might be a sandhill crane everybody was seeing, a large migratory bird with a red forehead and white cheeks that can have a wingspan five and a half to seven and a half feet across. Now, these are not native to the West Virginia area, so it might have gotten lost while migrating and its unfamiliar shape and size might have been mistaken for something strange in the dark. The red eyes that everybody was reporting could just as well have been the bird's retinas reflecting back the beams from their flashlights. Sheriff George Johnson rather thought all these reports were of what he called a shite poke, which sounds like he might have been saying they were nonsense or pranks. But actually, a shite poke is a type of a bird, a member of the heron family, which has long legs but is smaller than a sandhill crane with a wingspan of only about two feet. Other people thought maybe folks were seeing unusually large owls. One man in the area saw the reflective eyes of an owl one night and, panicked by these stories, blasted it into feathery oblivion with his shotgun. But the popular press rather enjoyed these stories coming out of Point Pleasant, and they focused on more sensational claims as well as tales that local Iroquois, Tuscarora, and Winnedot people had long had legends of a huge winged man they called the Thunderbird, who would always be seen just before some sort of a tragedy. A couple of writers noted that there was a villain in the Batman comic books, which were very popular at the time, called Killer Moth a criminal who hated the Cape Crusader and had even created a moth cave to mimic the Bat Cave. The villain Killer Moth probably inspired the nickname that got attached to the mysterious creature in Mason County, the Mothman. Reports continued to come in, eventually numbering over 100 for the next year. And then exactly 13 months after those two couples went to the sheriff on December 15, 1967, the silver bridge connecting Gallipolis, Ohio with Point Pleasant collapsed at 5.04 p.m. during rush hour traffic, killing 46 people, two of whom were never found. Cold, Cold Sweat, Sweat, a 1967 hit song by James Brown and the Famous Flames. It would turn out this had really all started two weeks earlier, back on the evening of November 2nd. Electronic goods salesman Woodrow Derenberger had just finished work in Marietta, which is just over the state line in Ohio, and was driving back to his home in Mineral Wells on the newly finished Highway 77. He'd gone about 15 of the 20 or so miles when, on the outskirts of the town of Parksburg, a large dark car without its lights on came up behind him. Instead of passing, however, it rose up, went over his car, and came back down in front of him, causing him to brake. It started slowing down, forcing him to do the same. Eventually, both vehicles came to a full stop. 
He then saw that it wasn't really a car exactly. It was more like a dark gray and black fat fluted shape that kind of resembled like an old oil lamp. And it was big, 25 to 30 feet long, taking up both lanes of the road. And most strangely, it was hovering a few inches off the road surface. Another car came along and passed them, but seemed not to notice anything amiss. Then an opening appeared in the craft's side, and out walked a handsome, deeply tanned, tall man, about six feet tall, wearing a top hat on top of his dark brown hair, which was combed straight back in a fairly unusual style for 1966 West Virginia. He also had on a coat, which was unzipped a little bit, and underneath you could see he was wearing a shirt made of some sort of shiny metallic material unbuttoned, no tie. The stranger walked over to the driver's window and asked Derenberger to roll it down. Not really asked exactly, but more like suggested somehow. Woodrow would later say it was as if the suggestion to roll down the window was suddenly there in his mind. As he complied with the request, the strange craft rose into the air about 75 feet and hovered there. The two then commenced to have a conversation, though the stranger never once moved his lips. He told Derenberger that he wished only happiness for him, that he came from a country much less powerful than Derenberger's, and he said his name was Cold. And later, his first name would also come out, Indrid. Indrid Cold then asked what those lights in the distance were, and Derenberger said it was the city of Parksburg. Cold told him that such a place was called a gathering where he was from. After once again reassuring Woodrow that he had no reason to be afraid, Cole then asked what Woodrow did with his time, and Woodrow tried to explain to him what a salesman was, though Indrid Cole seemed to have a hard time understanding the concept of working to earn money in order to live. Cole then said that he was a, quote, searcher. He then said that they would meet again, abruptly turned around, and got into the craft, which had silently descended back to just above the road. With an odd fluttering sound, kind of like a helicopter, the craft took off into the sky. November 15th is when the Scarberries and Mallets first saw the creature that got dubbed Mothman. That same night, the 15th, a man named Newell Partridge was watching TV when he started getting a strange interference pattern on his TV set, a pattern he described as, quote, repulsive. And there was a high squeal coming out of the set that went very high and then cycled back down again and then went up and then went down. Then his dog Bandit, who was outside by the hay barn, started howling. Partridge went out to see what the matter was, and when he moved his flashlight over near the barn, he saw two red circles like bicycle reflectors next to each other, as if they were the eyes of a creature about six feet tall. The thing with the red eyes then took off and Bandit chased after it. The dog was never seen again. The next day on the 16th, Mary Heyer wrote that first news story for the Point Pleasant Register. That evening, Marcella Bennett and Catherine Wamsley went to visit their friend, Mrs. Ralph Thomas. While chatting, Mrs. Bennett looked out the window and saw a tall, dark, winged creature with glowing or reflective red eyes in the yard. She screamed, and the others ran over to the window and also saw it. The creature then shot straight up into the sky, quote, like a rocket. Shortly after this encounter, Mrs. Thomas began having apocalyptic visions. All three ladies were devout churchgoers, and they were convinced that they had seen a demon. The day after this, November 17th, or maybe the next evening, it's hard to tell from accounts, Mary Heyer went out to the TNT area where the Scarsberries and Millettes had first seen this mothman. 
Now dozens of local teenagers had descended upon the place, hanging out, partying, hoping to see something weird. She observed the festivities for a while and then kind of walked around. Off to the edge of the area, she thought she saw red eyes in the darkness looking at her. But when she went after them, they disappeared. The morning after that, she went into the newspaper office to write up the story about those strange eyes and how the whole Mothman thing had certainly grabbed the attention of local youths when a man walked in. He was very short, about 5 foot 1, that's 155 centimeters, and was wearing shoes with thick soles that made him taller, so that means he was even shorter than 5'1". He was wearing dark trousers and a blue shirt, but no coat, even though it was cold. He wore thick, dark glasses, had blonde hair combed straight back in an unusual style, and his very well-manicured hands were extremely pale. One might even call them white. Not Caucasian, white. The odd man had come into the office completely silently, even though the front door rather notoriously made a loud sound every time it was opened or closed. In a high-pitched sing-song voice, he asked directions to the town of Welch, a mining town about 160 miles to the south. While Mary was telling him how to get there, he rather forcefully showed her some sort of paper receipt, though she couldn't make out for what, standing statue still and staring intensely at her. Then, in that same high, sing-song voice, he said his family lived in Grundy, a town about 45 miles west of Welch, and that his truck had broken down in Detroit, where it was very cold. He then took off his thick glasses, and Mary saw his eyes seemed so deeply sunken into his head that at first she thought he had no eyes at all. Startled, she went and got her boss, who is the one who usually dealt with oddballs who came in off the street. They asked him some clarifying questions like, how had he got to Point Pleasant from Detroit? He said he hitchhiked. And where his coat was? He said he'd left it in the truck. In the middle of conversation, the man abruptly turned around, went to the door, turned back around to face them, and then sort of half-backed out. People on the sidewalk said they had also seen this man walking down the sidewalk away from the office in an odd lurching way. He would go forward a few steps, then take a step or two to the left, continue forward a few more steps, then take a step or two to the right, and he would continue in this way until he rounded the corner. He also bumped into people seemingly unaware of how to share public space on a sidewalk. Either later that day or maybe the following day, again accounts are spotty, friends Donna Kenmore and Norma Ashley were out for a drive when they saw a large silver disc hanging in the air, almost swinging back and forth like a pendulum. While Donna thought this was interesting and wanted to get closer to investigate, Norma sort of freaked out, forcing Donna to drive away quickly. A short time later, Donna was in a Point Pleasant parking lot on her way to pick up a dress that was being altered when a poorly dressed man wearing ill-fitting clothes grabbed her from behind and forcibly kissed her. He then tried to muscle her into another car. She escaped by hitting him with her umbrella. But the next day, she received a handwritten note that said, quote, I can have you anytime I so desire. You cannot escape me. You did not hear me out. She thought the writing looked feminine, not like a man wrote it, and dismissed the note as a prank. Paperback writers. A nod to the 1966 song by the Beatles off their album Revolver. 
Around the same time as this, West Virginia native Gray Barker arrived in Point Pleasant, drawn by the news stories of this Mothman. Barker had made something of a name for himself in certain circles looking into cryptids, specifically the Flatwoods Monster of Virginia and West Virginia, which he thought was an alien creature. He then wrote the 1956 They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which is the first major mention of the Men in Black, where he said they were probably government agents trying to silence people. Then in 1962, he followed that up with a sequel, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, where he revealed that the Men in Black are actually themselves aliens. He'd had to create his own publishing house, Saucerian Books, in order to get that second book onto shelves. I guess he just wasn't seen as legitimate. The men in black, or MIBs, seemed to prefer traveling in groups of three, driving large black cars, usually Cadillacs that were vintage but seemed totally brand new. Barker then wrote a book about George Adamski, the guy who started the whole Nordic aliens trope, in the self-promotingly titled Gray Barker's Book of Adamski, which he published in 1966. So, let's call Gray Barker either a believer or at least someone who was partly invested in the world of UFOs and weirdness. Or, a frustrated science fiction writer who had a bizarre sense of humor. Barker came to town and started asking around. While interviewing Newell Partridge about his repulsive TV interference the disappearance of the dog bandit, a face appeared at the window looking in at him. At first, Barker assumed it was a nosy neighbor, but later, he would start to get the feeling that he was being watched. And then John Keel came to town, a man with a lifelong interest in stage magic who had been stationed in Frankfurt, Germany during the Korean War, where he would later claim he'd been trained in psychological warfare, mainly writing propaganda. He was a somewhat horny New York writer who penned a racy 1966 comedic novel called The Fickle Finger of Fate, a camp classic for adults only, about a superhero named Satyr Man who rescues buxom ladies from evil and then they get it on. This is a theme he would return to in another novel, Love That Spy, The Girl with the Golden Belly Button. But his main thing is his so-called non-fiction that's so incredible, the reader is tempted to think that it's probably actually fiction, or at least partly fiction. In fact, many people think that's what his whole body of work is, fiction pretending to be fact. Take his first major book, the 1957 book Jadu, which is billed as a biography of Keel himself, wherein he plays Russian roulette in the desert with a bandit chieftain, learns the secrets of the Indian rope trick, is cursed by a mummy, infiltrates a snake cult, and then infiltrates another cult that worships a devil named Yazidi, and then he chased the abominable snowman across the Himalayas before the nation of Singapore deported him. Wow, what a guy, a real-life Indiana Jones. He then got into the writings of Charles Fort and UFOs, he started writing articles for various UFO magazines, and he carried around a collection of documents from publications like Science Digest and Playboy, indicating that these publications had hired him to write on the UFO phenomenon on their behalf. He would carry these around in his briefcase and show them to anyone who would stand still long enough. Keel had already started to form some pretty wild ideas about UFOs, having finished two books already, Operation Trojan Horse, which would finally get published in 1970, in which he writes that UFOs can change their appearance to deceive and confound us, and The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, also published in 1970, which was a comprehensive account of cryptid sightings. 
He was working on his next work of utter speculation, or nonfiction if you prefer, which would eventually be titled Our Haunted Planet, in which he lays out a whole complex narrative that includes UFOs, cryptids, the men in black, legends of things like vampires and werewolves, myths and legends of tricksters and fairy folk, ancient stone monuments, missing ships, missing times, sorcery, ghosts, and a possible pre-human civilization that may or may not live underground in a hollow or partly hollow earth. The general idea is that all of these things are actually the same phenomenon and that it's at least partly natural in nature. We humans, it seems, are being toyed with at the very least. And it might even go further. Whatever these forces are might be manipulating us and trying to guide human existence. This was the sort of thing that was on John Keel's mind when he first came to Point Pleasant to poke into this Mothman business. According to his account, he got there just a few weeks after the initial reports and befriended Mary Heyer, who'd written that first news story. And together, they had a series of odd occurrences in the lead-up to the collapse of Silver Bridge. Keel and Barker met up in Point Pleasant and became friends, or at least friendly, working together over the next months, uncovering many weird stories and doing, well... A lot of speculating. One of the first things the pair did was go out to interview Woodrow Derenberger about his encounter with Indrid Cold, who had come a-visiting several times now. They found that word had spread about Derenberger's encounter, and a large number of people had camped out on the drive to Derenberger's house, waiting to see a UFO or something. One day in late December, after the looky-loos had left for the night, Indrid Cold suddenly was standing next to Derenberger's car with another man. Cold introduced this second man as his, quote, panion, Carl Ardo. Woodrow took the word panion to mean something like co-pilot. They told him they came from a planet called Lanulus, which was 30 light years from Earth near the constellation called Ganymede, which today is known as Aquarius. Lanulus had a lot in common with Earth, but because everybody there was telepathic, all thoughts were known to everyone, and so there was no strife and no war. Also, in the summer, they all went around totally naked. On subsequent visits, Cole showed up with his wife, a woman named Kimi, and two other crew members of the ship named Tony and Daryl. Sometimes there was also another woman named Elvain Kletaw, and a man from the planet Serenabus named Klinel. During such visits, Derenberger would sometimes invite them into his home. They tried human food, though they said it was bland. They gave him medicine that instantly cured his ulcer. And once, they took him aboard their ship, and in just a matter of minutes, had traveled the 30 light years to Cold's planet of Lanulus. People there seemed to be afraid of Woodrow until Cold and his friends explained that they'd arrived in summer and the fact that Woodrow was wearing clothes set everybody on edge. Once he agreed to go naked like everybody else, the people of Lunulus were much friendlier. Derenberger claimed there was always a ship nearby his home and that he could telepathically contact them, usually getting a response of some kind within 15 minutes. Strange Days, a 1967 song by The Doors. The whole Mothman thing and all the attendant UFO sightings really did attract a lot of attention. The TNT area was a nightly party spot, not just for young folks, though there were a lot of them, drinking, flirting, partying, and a few of them brought their guns with them, hoping maybe they could bag the strange critter. 
but also families would come, hang out, hoping to see something, and more than one preacher went there to quote from the book of Ezekiel and other biblical faves. And Point Pleasant, which had around 4,200 people, was swarmed by scores, maybe even hundreds of reporters and writers from all over the country. Add to that other people who came to town to see the Space Brothers as sort of like tourists and other assorted oddballs, and the town temporarily swelled in population. Now, not all the oddballs were out-of-towners, however. There was one local couple, William James Bateman and his wife Martha, who would walk around town holding a sort of scepter object between them. This object would warn them if, for example, they were about to cross the street, but a car was speeding towards them. If there was any kind of danger like that, it would shoot up, they claimed, of its own volition. Gray Barker met them on the street once, and Mr. Bateman explained that he'd been in contact with angels for a long time, and that he and his wife had recently been made honorary angels themselves. Their new angel peers had told them how to build this scepter, which was a, quote, 4D television camera containing 17 imported crystals. He said that while the scepter warned them of danger, its main purpose was that it allowed the angels to see what the Bateman saw, letting them sort of participate in the Bateman's lives. You see, there are somewhere between five and 7,000 angels using this one-of-a-kind device at any given time, riding along with the couple. These angels include both good angels and bad angels. The reason they let the bad angels, or devils if you prefer, use the device is that, you see, these devils live underground in dark caverns, but sometimes when they get to see how awesome human life can be, they change their minds and stop being bad. Bateman told Barker that there are specifically 8,509 devils in our solar system, and he firmly believed that he could convert them all into good angels by showing them the beauty of life on Earth. Angels, both good and bad, especially liked it when the Batemans watched TV and movies, and they really liked Bingo. Barker and Keel would flit in and out of this chaotic maelstrom of activity, and though Keel was the one who probably hung around the most, it was Barker who published the first book on the subject. His 1970 book, The Silver Bridge, is a weird mixture of reportage from interviews and speculation, with whole sections of verbatim dialogue he couldn't possibly have heard recounted. Sometimes he narratively enters into the minds of characters like Injured Cold and some of the men in black. As a writer, I think we can say Barker is more ambitious than talented. And of course, in addition to all the alien and men in black stuff, there were multiple sightings of the Mothman, according to Keel, over a hundred in the 13 months following the first sighting. It was always described as humanoid, tall, dark gray, with large wings and glowing and reflective red eyes. It made a weird chittering sound, almost like a rodent, if it made a sound at all. And while it flew and it could fly very fast, reportedly over 100 miles an hour, it never seemed to flap its wings. It was almost like it was wearing some sort of a, a jetpack or other propulsion unit. And of course, the men in black were all over the place. Keel and Barker both describe high-speed car chases, strange phone calls that are sometimes threatening and sometimes just disjointed or nonsensical. Deeply tanned men driving new-looking vintage cars dressed in dark clothing would show up in different people's homes and ask them a series of questions as if conducting a survey. The questions ranged all over the place, often not connected to anything at all. And often they asked what time it was, or they used a phrase like, where in time are you? 
All of these men somehow imparted feelings of alienness and even menace to the people they spoke with. Sometimes people invited them inside, where the men behaved in odd ways. In one instance, when the hostess gave her visitor a bowl of jello, he seemed not to know what it was and tried to drink it until she showed him how to eat it with a spoon. Some strangers would walk up to people on the street and, apropos of nothing, say Gray Barker or John Keel is a big liar and should not be believed. Several people reported being approached by short men who would ask what they thought local reporter Mary Heyer would do if she were ordered, and they emphasized the word ordered, to stop writing about UFOs. People who knew her said that she'd tell them to go to hell, which would then flummox the men who would then walk away. On a couple of occasions, people made sketches of their strange visitors, but later they would go out and then come home to find that their homes had been broken into and the sketches had been stolen. Nothing else, just the sketches. Many people reported odd interference on their TV and radios. There were literally hundreds of sightings of lights in the sky of all different colors and configurations, strange craft, and loud noises from the deep, dark woods. Others had what might be called poltergeist activity in their homes. Dishes flying off the shelves, loud thumps and bangs, the sounds of screaming or babies crying. For over a year, there was something unusual going on in and around Point Pleasant almost every single day, sometimes a couple of things on the same day. Many people in the area, after seeing strange lights or having a weird visitor or seeing the Mothman, found themselves suddenly having visions and feelings of dread about some sort of terrible disaster in the future, or they would get odd phone calls from strangers who, in among the ramblings and beeps and clicks, would warn of something dire to come in the following weeks or months. And so the exasperated and beleaguered residents of Point Pleasant were all sort of on edge. Thirteen Steps Lead Down. A 1994 song by Elvis Costello on the album Brutal Youth. On the evening of December 15th, 1967, during heavy rush hour traffic compounded by fervent Christmas shoppers, the 2,235-foot-long silver bridge buckled and then collapsed into the freezing winter waves of the Ohio River. 46 people died, two of whom were never found, Maxine Turner and Kathy Buse. After a three-year investigation, it would turn out that a single link on one of the suspension chains on the Ohio side had fractured due to stress corrosion cracking, which is also known as fretting wear, which caused a chain reaction of tension release, leading to the entire bridge twisting and then collapsing into the cold waters. Could this have been the disaster all those predictions had been about? Many wondered. Some pointed out that the bridge had been making groaning and moaning sounds for years and always shook a bit when traffic was heavy. Other bridges in the area were immediately examined and several were found to perhaps be not in the best shape and were closed, eventually to be replaced. Over the next few decades, more bridges would be built across the river, but back in 1967, the next closest ones to the Silver Bridge were 40 miles to the south and 50 miles to the north. So in addition to the lives lost, most of whom were Point Pleasant or Gallipolis residents, both towns also suffered economic setbacks as well. Some reporters in the area, both local and from further afield, started wondering if maybe the Mothman was some sort of harbinger of doom. Perhaps some of them remembered those old stories from Native Americans about the Thunderbird. Especially since, after that fateful December 15th night, there were pretty much no more reportings of the large-winged creature that Point Pleasant had become well-known for. 
Some people also noted that it had been 13 months to the day since those two young couples had seen the Mothman in the TNT area back on November 15th, 66, and that encounter was first reported by Mary Heyer, and that story got picked up and went nationwide, changing the small town's fortunes forever and seemingly kicking off a flurry of paranormal and strange activity. And of course, as everybody knows, 13 is an unlucky number, the number of death. Then on February 15, 1970, Mary Hired the reporter, died after a month-long illness, age 54. A few people noticed that this was exactly 26 months after that first reported Mothman sighting, and 26 is 13 times 2. Yeah, not really that strange, you think? Well, now, hang on a minute. Some moth maniacs, which is my term for fans of the Mothman, place a lot of emphasis on this recurrence of the number 13. In the 2017 book Mothman Evil Incarnate, cryptozoologist, commentator on pseudoscience, and founder of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, Lauren Coleman outlined some of the 13 lore, known among fans as Mothman Math. She references a Mothman sighting that supposedly occurred in Chicago on June 29, 2011. Thirteen months later, on July 9, 2012, Tropical Storm Kanun hit both North and South Korea, resulting in 169 deaths, 400 missing, 8,600 homes destroyed, 44,000 homes damaged, and 212,000 people left homeless. Way back on July 27, 1944, a Father Johnson of St. John's Church in Hollywood, Maryland, saw, quote, the outspread form of a huge man with wings in the sky. Thirteen months later to the day, on August 27, 1945, a hurricane struck the town of Sea Drift, Texas, about midway between Houston and Corpus Christi, killing three and causing $20 million in damage. This was also the first day of the American occupation of Japan after their unconditional surrender on August 15th. Now, why Mothman would show up in Illinois for an event that happened in Korea or in Maryland for a storm in Texas is a mystery, but the ways of the Mothman are opaque. But it's not just in the dates. There are lots more 13s to explore. For example, the Silverbridge collapse, which happened 13 months to the day after the first Mothman sighting, happened because of a fault in the 13th steel pin eye bar. In the TNT area, where the first reported sighting took place, the most polluted pond is designated Pond 13. The name of Point Pleasant has 13 letters in it. The maiden name of Linda Scarberry, one of those first four witnesses, was McDaniel, and the name Linda McDaniel has 13 letters. She also later moved to 13th Street, where she again saw the Mothman on the roof of her house. Steve Millette, another of those first four witnesses, also has 13 letters in his name. Other people who saw the Mothman at various times and who also have 13 letter names are Kenneth Duncan, Mabel McDaniel, and Kate Loon Beaver. A pilot named Everett Wedge, who has only 12 letters in his name, was with three other pilots when they all saw the Mothman, and one of those other men was Ernie Thompson, who does have 13 letters in his name. Witnesses are often accosted by the men in black to keep quiet about the Mothman and UFOs, and the phrase, the men in black, has 13 letters. A woman named Faye DeWitt Laporte says she saw Mothman when she was 13 years old. 
and John Keel had a heart attack on Friday, October 13th, 2006. However, this was non-fatal, and he lived until 2009. And yes, there's a lot more in the Mothman math, but I think we'll just stop right there. It seems pretty clear people can find 13s wherever they care to look. Knock on wood. A song first recorded in 1966 by Eddie Floyd, but widely covered afterwards, notably by David Bowie on his 1974 David Live album and the hit disco version in 1979 by Amy Stewart. While Mothman hasn't been reported around Point Pleasant since the disaster, it has shown up elsewhere. Way back in early January 1926, people around the Xiaonte Dam saw a, quote, man-dragon in the air. On January 19th, the dam collapsed and 19,000 people died. Nice story. Except that there is no source outside the Wu world for this 1926 incident in China. And in fact, there's no such thing as the Xiaonte Dam at all. There is a Xiaonanhai Dam, construction on which was started in 2012, but then canceled in 2015. And there is the Shanxiadaba, better known as the Three Gorges Dam, which was built in 1994. So this story is hooey. On September 10, 1978, miners in Freiburg, Germany saw a man standing by the mine entrance. He seemed to be wrapped up in a long black coat or maybe a cape. As they approached, he threw open the coat to reveal it was actually an enormous pair of wings. He turned to face the miners, looking at them with piercing red eyes that almost seemed to glow. The creature then let out a series of high-pitched shrieks. One witness described it as the sound of 50 men screaming all at once combined with the sound of a train hitting its brakes. Frightened, the men ran off to a safer distance, and the figure once again folded its wings around its body and stood motionless. Afraid to approach the mine, the men did some busy work outside. Then, at 8 a.m. sharp, they heard a tremendous explosion, and the ground beneath them shook violently, and the strange figure was gone. You see, the mine had collapsed, and had the 36 men been inside, they all surely would have died. And so the Freiburg Shrieker, as it would come to be known, seemed to have saved their lives. However, there are no outside sources for these events either. It's just blog posts. So it kind of looks to me like one person is making this stuff up for their blog and then another person simply copies and pastes into their own. And suddenly you've got 15 sources all saying the exact same thing in the exact same wording with the exact same misspellings. In 1986, several employees at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine had seen a large winged humanoid figure flying through the air in the days before the disaster there on April 26th. It had become such a commonplace sight, in fact, that people in the control room had nicknamed it the Blackbird of Chernobyl. And in the first week of September 2001, people reported seeing a large winged man in the air over New York City. I think you know where this is going. Yes, around the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Some even said that as that second plane was flying towards the building during the September 11th terrorist attack, they saw the winged creature flying parallel to the plane. People who told their friends these stories later received visits by the men in black and were told to keep their tales to themselves. In early July 2007, Mothman was seen flying around Minneapolis, Minnesota, and on August 1st, the I-35 West Mississippi River Bridge, great name, collapsed during rush hour, killing one person and injuring 145. 
Incidentally, that bridge went into service in November 1967, just one month before the Silver Bridge collapsed in Point Pleasant. Again, there are no good sources for any of these stories. There are images, but they are all obviously photoshopped. It seems pretty clear that people just find a disaster of some kind and then say, oh yeah, Mothman was seen in the area just before. They're almost certainly fake stories planted by people who want to push a narrative. But what is that narrative? Well, there are actually two main ones. The first is Mothman causes the disasters. And the second one, which is much more widely believed, is that Mothman is a herald of some sort or maybe trying to prevent the loss of life like in Freiburg, but probably just there to observe. Perhaps he's been sent as a recording device. He might not even be biological at all, but some sort of winged android. It has been noted that in all the encounters with Mothman, he, she, it, or they have never harmed anyone. The town of Point Pleasant has certainly leaned heavily into Mothman's mystique. They have a Mothman Museum, 499 entry. A live 24-hour moth cam that looks out on the Mothman statue. They have a Mothman mural. An annual Mothman festival that has live music, food, men in black and Mothman cosplay competitions, a Mothman 5K run, and a Mothman hayride. In 2024, this event happens September 21st and 22nd. Book your accommodation early. There's also a good account of visiting the festival on the Road Trippers website in an article titled, The Mothman Cometh. I went searching for Point Pleasant's Prophet of Doom, and all I got was a t-shirt. Link in the episode notes. Point Pleasant also has a Mothman car wash, and you can get your Mothman gear and other paranormal stuff at the Point Pleasant Trading Company on Main Street. Sadly, the Mothman Diner has closed, as has the Mothman Urban Legends Bar and Grill. The town's tourism tagline is a place where history meets mystery, which I think is pretty good. As mentioned before, Gray Barker published first about the Mothman, but then moved on to other things. He really liked the men in black trope that he'd probably created wholesale back in the 50s and kept hammering that nail all the way up until his final book published in 1983, just one year before his death, titled MIB, The Secret Terror Among Us. He was well known among friends for being a hoaxer with a wicked sense of humor, and he probably thought it was very funny that people believed anything that he wrote about. He was also instrumental in the Valiant Thor story, which was talked about in a previous episode about the Vril. So Barker got there first, but it's really John Keel who's the point man for the events in Point Pleasant. His 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, is marginally better than Barker's, I suppose. At least it's more coherent. And while he doesn't go off on the flights of fancy that Barker does, he does spend a lot of time talking about how kind of amazing he is, critiquing the appearance of various women he encounters, and trying to draw in UFO sightings from all over the place, like places like Long Island, and somehow tying them into the Mothman stuff. It's hard to pin down just how much of this stuff is actual reportage and how much they just made up. Sadly, apart from a few news clippings, these two books remain the primary sources for information about Mothman. Keel's Mothman prophecies certainly cemented his position in the Wu world and got a further boost when this was adapted, rather skillfully I think, by Richard Hatton for a 2002 film directed by Mark Pellington starring Richard Gere as John Klein, who's clearly based on Keel, as well as Laura Linney, 
Deborah Messing, and Will Patton. Before that movie, most of the general public had never heard of Mothman. I know I hadn't. Keel certainly dined out on Mothman for a long time, though he used it to further his offbeat ideas about aliens and the like, a theory he outlined in several subsequent books about what he called ultra-terrestrials. And that in itself is a whole thing, and probably a fit subject for a later episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Thank you for visiting the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.